This is Kick-Ass Politics. I'm Ben Mathis. Hi, folks. Before we start the show, I want to ask for your help. If you enjoy Kick-Ass Politics, I hope you'll help us reach our goal of raising our full production budget for 2016 by donating on our website at kickasspolitics.com or at gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics. Thanks for listening, and now enjoy the show. In case you can't tell from that newsreel clip, Jackie Robinson made the game of baseball a hell of a lot more interesting. When Jack Roosevelt Robinson stepped on the field, he brought with him a more exciting, aggressive style of baseball that forever changed how the game was played. It marked the end of the old long ball era in baseball, introducing base stealing to the major leagues and making speed just as important as raw hitting power. But there's so much more to the story of the athlete who came from humble beginnings to cross baseball's long-standing color line and become one of the most beloved men in America. His story is chronicled in a new two-part documentary that airs tonight on PBS from my guest today, renowned documentary filmmaker Ken Burns. Since his Academy Award-nominated film on the Brooklyn Bridge in 1981, Ken Burns has gone on to direct and produce some of the best historical documentaries ever made. He's filmed 26 documentary specials or miniseries for PBS, including his acclaimed nine-part miniseries on the Civil War, a nine-part miniseries on baseball, a ten-part miniseries on the history of jazz, a seven-part miniseries covering World War II, a seven-part miniseries on the history of the American West, a four-part miniseries on the Dust Bowl, a three-parter on Prohibition, and documentary specials covering everything from Mark Twain and Huey Long to the Lewis and Clark Expedition and the Statue of Liberty. Ken's films have won 13 Emmy Awards and two Oscar nominations, and Ken has been honored by the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences with a Lifetime Achievement Award. Today, Ken Burns will talk about why, after his nine-part miniseries on baseball, he felt that Jackie Robinson deserved his own standalone documentary. We'll talk about how Jackie revolutionized the game and brought down baseball's color barrier with sheer force of talent. We'll talk about his life after baseball, how he inspired other civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King, and the difficult relationship he had with the movement in the later years of his life. Coming up with filmmaker Ken Burns in just a moment. From Hollywood to Washington, it's time for Kick-Ass Politics. And now here's your host, Ben Mathis. Today I'm joined by filmmaker Ken Burns. Ken, thanks for talking to me. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for having me. 
Well, first off, I'm curious, do you consider yourself a documentary historian or a historical filmmaker, or what would be the proper intro? I just like filmmaker. I, I'm in the business of telling stories, and I think because uh, mo all of my stories have been in American history, there's a presumption that I'm a historian. I'm not a trained historian. I do believe it's possible for there to be popular historians, and it's very important in democracy for people to be able to tell histories that don't have academic degrees in history. But the word history is mostly made up of the word story, uh, plus the word high, which is a good introduction, and I just want to tell good stories. Well, one of those stories is you have a new two-part film debuting on PBS April 11th on the life of baseball player Jackie Robinson. Um, in 1994, you did a very thorough nine-part miniseries on the history of baseball. You gave a good deal of attention to Jackie Robinson in that series. So what were the parts of his story that didn't make it into that documentary or that you felt warranted deeper examination? Well, we did. Jackie was the kind of moral and emotional heart and core of those entire 18 and a half hour, nine episode, nine inning of that original baseball series. And uh, I think he made an appearance in just about every uh, one of the episodes and was hugely important. But several years after that 1994 broadcast, his widow, Rachel, came to me and said, there should be a standalone film on him. And I said, of course, you're right. And she was hoping to get a feature project going, which he actually finally was able to do with the 42 movie that came out a couple of years ago. And she just really kept pestering me in the best sense of the word uh, to do a film on it. And I began to realize how helpful it would be uh, to have a standalone portrait. He is one of the most important human beings in the history of the United States. He is the beginning of progress in civil rights after the Civil War, unfortunately delayed, you know, uh, 85 years. Um, he's an extraordinary human being, a great hero, and that I realized that part of the problem was that that hero had become so smothered in myth that he had sort of been reduced to a kind of sanitized Madison Avenue version of who he actually was. And the more complex, deeper, nuanced uh, portrait of him that wasn't just the slice of his 42, his, his 1947 debut, but, but his whole life, which we tried to do, uh, I integrating in our series would be much, much better. And uh, finally, I was able to see some daylight in my own pretty busy schedule of working on multiple projects at once. Uh, I had finished uh, making a film with my daughter, Sarah Burns, and uh, her husband, the uh, filmmaker, David McMahon, and the three of us decided to co-direct and co-produce this film, and Sarah and Dave wrote it on Jackie Robinson. And what it does is it strips away a lot of that mythology. His, his story has become encrusted with the barnacles of sentimentality and nostalgia, and um, a lot of the stuff isn't true. It's just sort of the mythology that's grown up around them. And we wanted to clear that away and dive deeper into the life and the complications of that life and spend a lot of time, dedicate a lot of time to what he did after uh, baseball, which is very little known, and uh, but very much a part of continuing this extraordinary life where he got ever, up every day trying to make the lives of other people better. Now, a lot of people talk the talk, but he walked the walk, and that's the film we wanted to make. For many people, the Jackie Robinson story ends when he hangs up his glove. But you actually do dedicate almost the entire second half of the film to his life after baseball. What was he trying to accomplish in that phase of his life? 
I think he was continuing on the mission that had begun when he was tapped uh, by Branch Rickey, asked to be the first African-American in the modern age. And you have to step back and, and consider what that moment really meant. On April 15th, 1947, Jack Roosevelt Robinson, the grandson of a slave, made his way to first base. When he did so, Martin Luther King was still a junior at Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, Truman hadn't integrated the military. Uh, there was no um, Brown versus Board of Education decision by the Supreme Court ending uh, segregation in schools. There weren't uh, calculated lunch counter uh, sit-ins. Uh, Rosa Parks was still almost a decade away from refusing to give up her seat on a Montgomery uh, bus. We we were at the beginning of the modern civil rights leader. Martin Luther King himself said later, uh, Jackie Robinson was a sit-inner before sit-ins, a freedom rider before freedom rise. So he was the civil rights movement, and he understood it, and he carried an extraordinary load. And remember, for the three years in professional baseball, he had to turn the other cheek to every slight threat and abuse that he would face. It was a terrible, terrible burden that would eventually kill him very young. But at that moment, he said in a, in a very soft-spoken way, maybe I'm doing something for my race. Yeah, right. And he would go on to do that. So when baseball was over, when he had reached the end of his ability to play at the level he wanted to, and, and he retired, and it was on the eve of the Dodgers abandoning Brooklyn and heading to Los Angeles, he continued doing what he had always done, speaking out against discrimination, speaking out for increased opportunity for African Americans, speaking out in general about the themes that have animated American history. And that's what he did. And he did it in very unusual ways, which I think the viewers will find surprising and interesting and fascinating. But you can't but help stand in awe of this man who dedicated every single minute of his life to helping others. Yeah, and it's interesting because you mentioned uh, how Martin Luther King looked up to him. You know, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, they were just kids when Jackie Robinson was in his prime. Malcolm they, X uh, uh, said that he that Jackie Robinson, he followed every at-bat, he said, of, of Jackie's rookie year, and he had no greater fan than me. And then <laughs> later on, as the civil rights movement is changing as more radical and militant leaders like Malcolm X and others, H. Rep. Brown, Stokely Carmichael, are coming up, they look at Jackie Robinson and Dr. King as kind of anachronistic. Uh, Uncle Tom, uh, he was accused, Jackie was accused of being. That's true, and he really is. He's kind of denigrated as uh, some type of a throwback by the more militant uh, wing of the civil rights movement in the 60s. All these people who praised him suddenly kind of threw him under the bus to some extent. Let me, let me just amend that. Yeah. It's very easy in a media culture where it bleeds, it leads, uh, to say that the people who had praised him uh, threw him under the bus. There was a minority of African-Americans who grew understandably frustrated with the pace of integration and began to think about separation and began to think in a much smaller minority of more militant activities. Uh, those people were outspoken in opposition to those preachers, as they said, meaning Martin Luther King, and those folks like Jackie Robinson who were still urging caution and patience and all of the things, the very things that Jackie refused to accept, patience, uh, when he was coming up, when people told him, don't rock the boat. African-Americans as well as whites, don't rock the boat, be patient. And he had said, we've been patient for decades and decades after emancipation, and we've got nothing. A vast majority of African-Americans uh, respected Jackie Robinson, and that never varied. What it shows is that someone who's consistent 
who in the very beginning of his career is kind of radical to civil rights leaders and other African-American entertainers who, you know, are a little bit anxious not to get too close to Jackie because he's radical. By the end, there he's being called by some and Uncle Tom, but it's only by some. And I think the film sort of puts in perspective that he still gets up every day. He puts on his pants one leg at a time and goes forward to help other people. And that's not always the case with some of the more vocal, more militant, more violence advocating uh, leaders. There's a good deal of, of self-regard and, and public relations involved, as well as some very sincere. I mean, in, you know, the, the Declaration of Independence suggests that when things become too tyrannous, that we're obligated to throw off that tyranny. Um, and that's part of an American tradition. It's just um, most Americans don't like to hear it coming from African-Americans. Yeah. And when I watched the film, I wondered, do you think that that rebuke and the belittling of him as an Uncle Tom hurt him perhaps even as much as the insults that he got from the white crowds in the stands when he was playing? That's a really wonderful question. And in a way, now with him gone for so many decades, it's impossible to know. Yeah. Uh, Rachel does admit that those Rachel, racial slights uh, take, took an enormous toll on him and uh, I think contributed, obviously, uh, to his early death looking. I mean, he I'm 62. He was 53. He looked old, white-haired, and stooped, and, you know, uh, that's what he carried. I've got to assume that some of that happened. It was very frustrating. You can see it written on his faces when he was sometimes confronted as a representative of Governor Nelson Rockefeller when he was touring the state of New York trying to calm uh, a lot of racial unrest due to police brutality due to decades and centuries of uh, being ignored. Um, you could see the frustration of not being able to have uh, the answers and understanding that he was caught between a rock and a hard place. And it's written on his face. And that, I've got to presume, uh, took an enormous toll on him. It must have hurt his feelings. But I'm lesser people would have quit baseball the first time somebody yelled a racial epithet at him. They would have quit baseball when they put a black cat. They would have quit baseball at all the the uh, hate mail, and he did, and he kept going. And in this case, he just kept going and moving forward. And just a few days before he died, in front of a national audience of perhaps even 70 million people, he was saying, you know, I'm very pleased and proud at the at the World Series to get this honor, uh, but I'm going to be more pleased and more proud when I see a black face standing at third base, meaning where are the black coaches? Where are the black managers? Where are the black uh, front office people? That is still a problem in Major League Baseball. And Jackie was arguing that at a moment of great um, honor for him when he could have just sort of soaked it up. He still was moving forward. He still had things to do. Yeah, and you mentioned the owners and managers. One of the people that came up earlier in the conversation is uh, sort of an unlikely hero to Jackie Robinson's story. It's Branch Rickey, who was the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers. What was it about this young player, Jackie Robinson, aside from his talent on the field, that appealed to Branch Rickey? Rickey is one of the great pioneers in baseball history. He fundamentally changed the game twice. First, when he was working with a lowly St. Louis team that couldn't afford to buy big stars like the big market teams, like the New York Yankees and the New York Giants. Um, he uh, developed the farm system, revolutionizing how we grow talent uh, in baseball and, and elevated the Cardinals to, you know, 
really front rank status. He then moved to Brooklyn as its president and general manager and had fiercely religious man, had had, had earlier in his life uh, uh, an encounter with overt racism when he was a young coach and he had a black catcher. And he never forgot the pain on that catcher's face when an um, Indiana northern clerk wouldn't let this guy register at a motel or a hotel. And um, he vowed to change that. He had planned to bring up lots of different black players. We always posit this as uh, Jackie, as Branch Rickey, as God, you know, reaching down with his finger and anointing uh, Jackie as the Christ-like figure who will turn the other cheek. But he was planning to bring up other black players, and there were other black players that were, um, you know, much uh, uh, better known and probably more talented than Jackie. And other events, outside pressures, uh, the black press, which for decades had been arguing for integration, the left white press had been pushing for this, particularly the communist parties uh, were a daily worker. Uh, other politicians had been pressing for this. The liberal progressive Republican mayor of New York, Fiorel LaGuardia was doing this. And so Ricky was fearing that the moment that he wanted to control was being taken away from him. And so he reached out to somebody that a black sports writer had told him had had a great uh, batting practice, and that was Jackie Robinson. So Jackie came up first, and he investigated him and knew that Jackie had a hot temper, knew he was fiercely competitive, knew it was going to be really tough to turn the other cheek, but he had a college education. He had a woman that he loved who was extraordinary, Rachel Robinson, and um, that he would be the perfect person for his experiment. And Jackie proved more than able to do it. And, and, and you know, Jackie stands as one of the, you know, perhaps 10 greatest Americans of all time. And that his moment is the first real progress in civil rights since the Civil War. You cannot, he is the most important person in the history of baseball. He may not be the best baseball player, and I can think of a dozen players who are better than him, but he did get elected for his baseball skills to the Hall of Fame in his first uh, moment of eligibility. But it is more the social change that he brought to America by being the first to go through that door and the first to be willing to carry that burden for so long of all yeah. those racials. We cannot possibly underestimate in a game in which equipoise, this, this ability to concentrate and also relax at the same time, which is the hardest thing to do in sports, is hit, you know, um, uh, this baseball coming at you at 100 miles an hour with a piece of turned northern ash. As we know, the greatest basketball player in the universe couldn't hit a buck 80 uh, <laughs> when he tried uh baseball. So to be able to do this with the threat that somebody's going to kill your wife or your kid or they're yeah. going to kill you is unbelievable. Yeah, it is. And and there's a great moment in the film when Jackie Robinson first sits down with Branch Rickey in his office. Tell, tell us, what did Branch Rickey say to Jackie Robinson in that first meeting? So Jackie Robinson was playing with the Kansas City Monarchs of the Negro Leagues, making a kind of inconsistent living. He wanted more. Um, when Clyde Sukforth was dispatched to check Jackie out, who was playing in a Negro League game at Comiskey Park, uh, he brought him back. Uh, he saw Jackie play, loved him, brought him back to uh, the Montague Street offices in Brooklyn of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And Branch Rickey said, you know, for this experiment to work, you are going to have to um, turn your other, the other cheek for everything you're going to do. And then Ricky went through screaming at him. Ricky was a very 
you know, sort of bombastic guy. They called his office the cave of the winds, but he, he didn't swear. And his, his biggest expletive, according to Red Barber, the southern broadcaster for the Dodgers, was Judas Priest. So he went through <laughs> screaming the worst sorts of things at Jackie. And, um, you know, can you, can you do this without fighting back? And Jackie said he could. And um, wow. so he, he was loved, testing him. He was testing him, wow. and it was one. It's one of the great moments, I think, in American history. It's where Branch Rickey could see daylight, where, where more importantly, Jackie Robinson could see daylight, and most important, Jackie was said, "Yeah, I'll shoulder this burden because it's going to mean something for other people." Now it killed him. You know, great. The heart of the Christian tradition, and we make Jackie into a Christ-like figure for turning the other cheek. At the heart of the Christian tradition is sacrifice. And Jackie sacrificed himself for a much bigger cause. And we interviewed in the film uh, President Obama and the First Lady because their path was made possible in part, or at least at first, by the path that Jackie and his great support system, Rachel. Jackie couldn't have made it without Rachel. He couldn't have made it without having um, a refuge to go home to, somebody who had his back, as the President said, who loved him. And that's what this president has had to go through. And so it's been an amazing, there's a wonderful kind of correspondence between the two couples over time. And that's yeah. what good history is. It's a conversation between the past and the present. Because as William Faulkner said, history is not was, but is. Um, history doesn't repeat itself. We're not condemned to repeat what we don't remember. But there are patterns and themes that we see in history because human nature remains the same. And so we can see in the story of Jackie Robinson, all the things we're talking about today, you know, Confederate flags and integrated swimming pools and driving while black and stop and frisk and young African-Americans being killed by police and churches being burned and, all, you know, people, all the issues of race that command our attention today at a time when we hoped, we prayed we'd be in a post-racial situation and it hasn't happened. All of this was going on with Jackie. Now, the pessimist could say, you know, this is a glass uh, half empty. It's not. I was able to interview an African-American president and his African-American wife about the first African-American to play. And that means progress has been made. But it also means, if you hear the echoes, the rhymes of the past, that um, we are able to learn from it and to perhaps go forward. You always, a couple steps forward, a couple steps back. A couple steps forward, maybe only one step back. And that's, that's human progress. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back to talk more with Ken Burns. Hey, folks. Do you like reading, but you don't have the time? Then maybe it's time to start listening to audiobooks. Audiobooks are the perfect thing to listen to on your drive to work or on the treadmill at the gym, or how about while you're cooking dinner? Or relaxing in the tub. You don't have to carve out an hour or two of your day just to focus all your attention on reading a book anymore, because audiobooks are great just about anywhere. And right now, you can listen to an audiobook for free with a special promotion for our listeners from audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics for a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook download, which can be any of Audible's 180,000 titles for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, iPad, or MP3 player. That's audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or click on the sponsor link on our webpage at kickasspolitics.com. 
to download the free audio book of your choice. And now, back to the show. I'm back and I'm talking with Ken Burns, who has a brand new documentary coming out on PBS April 11th on Jackie Robinson. Uh, Ken, you know, you talk about in the film that if he hadn't been such a great athlete, he probably wouldn't have been the civil rights hero that he was. But because he was so good at a certain point, even the players on his own team who initially threatened to boycott, they had to accept that this guy, this guy's an amazing talent. And eventually it came down to, do we want to win this or don't we want to win? Well, yeah, this is, this is it. You know, uh, why is it that the first progress in civil rights is in baseball? Well, sports is a meritocracy, you know, it, it elevates people who play well. So there were abject races, uh, races on the Dodgers and they didn't want him to play. But even at the end of the first season, when they won the national league pennant, Dixie Walker from Leeds, Alabama had to admit and un not understanding the play on words or the pun that he had uh, done. He said, Jackie is everything that, that branch Ricky said he would be. He has helped us more than anyone else to bring us up in the race, meaning the pennant race. But you know, this is it. We're, we're all faced with, um, Really existential questions. Let's just assume you're a racist Brooklyn Dodger fan. What do you do when Jackie comes up? Well, you can change allegiances to another team, but Jackie just represents the foot in the door. You know the change is going to come. So you yeah. can give up baseball, but you're giving up the best a sport ever invented. Or you can change. Yeah. And not everybody's changed. We can see that by the election of Barack Obama, who twice was elected by a majority of Americans, but a, but a minority of the minority that didn't vote for him was so disturbed by his presence that we've seen these racial issues come to the fore in a way that, that, that you know, they've metastasized in a way that we thought we'd passed all of that stuff. So his coming up didn't end things, but it, it gave people some of these kinds of existential choices. Who am I? What will I become? How can I change? Red Barber, who grew up in Sanford, Florida, went to an all-white university in the South. He, you know, Branch Rickey knew he had to have his broadcaster on his side. And he suddenly realized, you know, I didn't choose being born white, he said. I didn't choose being born white or black. And my job was a reporter. I wasn't, I wasn't Jackie Robinson. I wasn't the other Dodgers. I wasn't Mr. Ricky. All I had to do was report on what happened on the field. And all of a sudden, as he did that, he began to see Jackie Robinson as a full human being. And it changed him. And that's what it's about. If you want to spend your life clinging to the old hatreds and the old animosities, that just, that ruins your life. But if you want to go with what Abraham Lincoln called the better angels of our nature, as Jackie certainly did, then you've got, then you can make that third choice and change. Yeah. And you know, while we're on the subject of change these days, it seems like everyone throws around the term game changer a lot, but Jackie Robinson, when it comes to the, the actual game of baseball, he literally did change the very nature of the game and he made it more exciting and more aggressive. Talk about the long ball era of baseball and what he did to really shake things up in a big way. Well, he's a game changer on so many levels. You could say, you know, this is a you know, obviously on a, in American social history, it's a game changer. He's oh, the absolutely. first progress in civil rights. It's a, it's a, it's a, I think a human, a worldwide inspirational story. But in baseball itself, it's it's hugely important. Not just that he's the first African American, but he's bringing a style of play. He's played in the Negro Leagues. He knows what it is. Since the Black Sox scandal, we have been depending on people like Babe Ruth and Babe Ruth to knock on home runs, knock balls out of the park, and that you get. 
on bass and then somebody hits a single and you move around the bass and that's it. So what he brings is speed to the game. That's one thing. You know, you walk, you steal a bass, you steal a second bass, you steal home, the most difficult thing in all of sports. It's, you know, you become this mesmerizing thing. You have blinding uh, speed on the bass pass, so you're making calculated uh, errors there. You're hitting also for power. So he's combining speed and power, which is the beginning, as the historian John Thorne says in our film, of the modern age. So he's fundamentally changing baseball, and the fact that he's coming through the door means that other African-Americans are going to come through the door. Larry Doby in the American League, Don Newcomb and uh, Roy Campanella on that same Dodgers, Willie Mays and Hank Aaron and Roberto Clemente, the whole Latin players are suddenly going to come in, and that's going to transform the game for the better. Now, let me give you one of my favorite statistics in all of baseball. After Jackie came up in the National League, where there was still a quota, you know, for many, many years. You didn't want to have more than one or two African-Americans on your team. African-Americans, nonetheless, won the MVP nine out of 11 straight years. Wow. That, to me, tells you, what have we missed? When the African-Americans in the precursor to the major leagues in the 1880s and 90s were excluded by the so-called gentleman's agreement, Cap Anson said, I won't... I won't play if that N-word is on the field. Uh, Moses Fleetwood Walker, Bud Fowler, and a handful of other African-Americans just disappeared from what was then the equivalent of Major League Baseball. And it wasn't until Jackie that they came up. And so you realize what was missing. So when people say, ah, oh, the golden age of baseball was in the 20s, in the 30s, when Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and uh, Joe DiMaggio were hitting home runs, it's not. You can't even begin to even calibrate whether it's a golden age until April 15th, 1947, when Jackie Robinson comes up. So what that says is that the 50s and the 60s uh, and the 70s are the golden age of baseball, uh, and perhaps even now, because the play is never better on the field. And uh, you know what? Every stadium has retired numbers. Every stadium has retired his number. He's the only player with his number retired in every stadium. He is the only number that cannot be worn by any other player. When Mariano Rivera, the Hall of Fame reliever for the New York Yankees, who had consciously chosen the number 42 to play in because he knew the legacy, he knew that he was there by the grace of Jackie Robinson's sacrifice. When he retired, no one else will ever wear that number 42 except every April 15th, the anniversary of his arrival, Every single major leaguer, from the coach to the every player to the reserves, wears the number 42 in one of the greatest gestures of solidarity with the extraordinary sacrifice that Jackie Robinson made. Yeah, and is, is that the only official holiday in baseball, Jackie Robinson Day? It's not a holiday. Okay. Everybody plays the game. The games go on, right, but everybody right. wears the same number on the uniform. It's a kind of I am Spartacus moment. It was yeah. that moment in <laughs> Billings, Montana, about 20 years ago when some idiot threw a rock through the window of a Jewish family that had a menorah, and then the newspaper printed a full-page picture of a menorah, and thousands of citizens of Billings scotch-taped that menorah up to their window and stood in solidarity. So every April 15th, it's a working day, all of Major League Baseball, every single player on every single team wears the number 42 in honor of what he did, this most important of all baseball players. Wow, and well-deserved honor. Ken, let's talk about your process. When you decide to make a documentary, as you're combing through the vast catalog of American history, 
What do you look for in a story? I look for a story that's running on all cylinders, a story that can ask the question I ask in every film. Who are we? Who are those strange and complicated people who like to call themselves Americans? What can an investigation of the past tell us not only about what happened before, but what is happening now and also what our future might be? And so in Jackie Robinson, you find history firing on all cylinders. It's just it engages all the major themes of American history, freedom, race, leadership, excellence, sacrifice, community, social progress, all of the themes that occupy our attention when you strip away the dry dates and facts and events that makes history for most people boring. For me, it's this great pageant of everything that's gone before this moment. And then you want to do a deep dive. You know, there's lots of different ways to see the past. I mean, you learn in this film that one of the most famous sort of superficial uh, tropes about Jackie Robinson is the moment when they go to Cincinnati and it's a racist yeah. thoughts are being thrown and Pee Wee Reese goes over and puts his arm around him. There's now a statue of Pee Wee doing that outside of the Cincinnati uh, stadium and it never happened. <laughs> it didn't or it didn't happen certainly that year when Jackie was over at first base and he would have had to walk all the way over from shortstop to do it. <laughs> and um, it's not mentioned in the white press, it's not mentioned in Jackie's autobiography, and it's certainly not mentioned in the black press, which would have done many, many, many stories about it if it had happened. And what it is is just white people wanting to have some ownership of this story, had to have, no pun intended, skin in the game. And, and, and that's, I guess, understandable, but it's a myth. So wouldn't you really like to know the real story, the complicated story of this, that isn't just superficial, that isn't just, oh, isn't he a nice, you know, polite, Negro, you know, because when Jackie no longer has to turn the other cheek, when after three years, one in the minors with the Montreal Royals and two with the Dodgers, he's a fierce, fierce competitor. And all of a sudden, the people who had supported him, the newspaper men, the teammates are suddenly calling him uppity. <laughs> and um, all he's yeah. doing is asking for what every American citizen ought to have is an equal opportunity and a level playing field. Yeah. And when you make a documentary like this, what what is the start to finish process for you well each documentary is different this is a two-part four-hour film biography uh it's going to be premiere on april 11th and then that part two is on april 12th and um we you know for many film production companies there's sort of a, a delineated research period maybe it's three weeks maybe it's three months and then there's a delineated writing period from that research three weeks or three months and then you've produced a document which is sort of like the tablet that's come down from mount sinai and that's informs edit uh shooting and editing, boom, done. Well, we never stop researching and oh, we never really? stop writing. We oh, don't want anything to be written in stone. We want to be corrigible. We want to learn new information. We want to say, you know what? That may not actually be true or this new scholarship has just arrived and that's not quite right and let's just make sure. So our editing process, which is attenuated, it takes us longer to do our films, but it also, I think, makes them more durable and more reliable and less biased. I mean, a lot of documentaries are wonderfully about opinion. I, they're advocating for something and we've got a constitution and we got a bill of rights and the first one says you can say what you believe. So there's no law that it has to be objective and no, no film is objective, no documentary is objective. But I, I want to be fair. I want to present a history in which I can speak to all of my fellow countrymen and women and just say, here's a story about Jackie Robinson. This is, as far as we can tell, as true as we know, and we don't have our thumb on the scale one way or the other. Do we hate injustice? Yes, I am unapologetic about that. Do we hate discrimination? Yes. Do we want a level playing field and equal opportunity for all Americans? Yes. If that's bias, then 
I'm sorry, but that's the American creed. And if you don't agree with it and you're American, you've got a lot of studying to do. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting what you said about the research part, how that go that's an ongoing process. No. Because for me, one of the things that I've always wondered, when you take on a subject as big as a 10-part miniseries, on something as huge as jazz or you know encompassing all of baseball or the civil war I, I imagine myself starting the research process and procrastinating for three months because i wouldn't even know where to begin do you begin in a particular place when you start the research well we put our pants on one leg at a time and it takes you know step by step and it's a long process and because we never stop researching it makes us open i mean what a, what arrogance it would be to begin at the beginning of a project and impose what your preconceptions you know yeah. if i tell you what i already know um that's homework and nobody likes that but if i share with you a process of discovery that's exciting hey this is what i learned this is amazing this is different from from other stuff having spent your entire career looking backwards at significant events in, in our past with hindsight 100 years later or 50 years on, I'm curious, how do you view current events or say like the current presidential election today? Do you have a long view of today's news or are you just as shocked by the headlines as the rest of us usually? Well, I think that I'm shocked by sort of the intemperance of this for example, political <laughs> campaign, uh, but that's not new. The election of 1800 was incredibly raucous. If uh, the uh, supporters of, of John Adams said that if you supported Thomas Jefferson, uh, all of these Jacobins, meaning French revolutionaries, would come and rape your daughters and wives, and yeah. that the Jefferson's people said, if you vote for Adams, you're voting for a king. And these two men used to be close friends and would eventually right. return to being close friends. So it's there. I mean, when you see the anti-immigration stuff, that was there in the nothing parties in the uh, first half of the uh, 1800s uh, and again in the 20s and again at other times uh, when you hear the racism uh, that is out there um, that's just overt now uh, people are sort of shocked at this uh, but it's been around for all of American history and unfortunately so what ha what happens is that history can give you a perspective let me take it out of the current political thing and just take a recent event that every American is aware when the meltdown happened in 08 Friends of mine would say, oh, my God, we're in a depression. Huh. And I said, no, we're not. Yeah. In the depression, in most American cities, the animals in the zoo were shot and the meat distributed to the poor. Wow. When that happens, Jeez. I will. That's a depression. I will, I will admit that that's a depression. But that didn't happen. And so that gives you a, you're sort of armed with a kind of perspective. And because, as the Bible says, there's nothing new under the sun, that means that human nature remains the same. We're going to keep running into things that seem familiar, that rhyme, as Mark Twain said, that are, are, are returns to familiar themes and, um, and moments. And so I, I think knowing your history makes you extraordinarily prepared for the present and makes you, in a funny way, optimistic about the future. Well, Ken Burns, thank you for everything you've done and so many great documentaries. And also, thank you for the Ken Burns effect. <laughs> and I have to say, when I sit down to my Mac and I try to use the Ken Burns effect on Final Cut Pro or iPhoto or something, it doesn't look nearly as good as when you do it. Well, you, you, you can thank my late friend Steve Jobs. It was his idea uh, to do that, and, and they accomplished it. And um, a lot of, I've saved, let's just put it this way, I've saved a lot of weddings and vacations and bar mitzvahs <laughs> uh, and parties, birthday parties with, uh, with that effect.
<laughs> well, Ken Burns, the documentary is Jackie Robinson, and it's debuting on PBS April 11th and the second part on April 12th. Ken, thanks so much for sitting down to talk with me about this great movie. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Ken Burns for coming on the show. If you liked this episode, you can follow him on Twitter at at Ken Burns or at KenBurns.com. And you definitely don't want to miss his two-part documentary on Jackie Robinson. It premieres tonight, Monday, April 11th at 9 p.m. Eastern on PBS, with a second part airing on Tuesday, April 12th. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass Politics on iTunes and leave us a review. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at GoFundMe.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or click on the donate button on our website at kickasspolitics.com. Follow us on Twitter at at KAPolitics or visit Kickass Politics on Facebook. And while you're there, recommend Kickass Politics to your friends on your social media. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickasspolitics.com. In the next episode, I'll talk with Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for the Wall Street Journal, Mei Fong. She's written a new book called One Child, the Story of China's Most Radical Experiment. We'll discuss the most audacious attempt in history to socially engineer human behavior as a quick fix to China's overpopulation and poverty problem 30 years ago. We'll also talk about the horrors and unintended consequences of state-controlled family planning, that have now led to a rapidly growing senior population that will have no one to care for them, the social crisis of a country that now has far too few women, and the decline in the Chinese workforce that may one day soon put an end to China's dominance in manufacturing. Coming up with Wall Street Journal reporter Mei Fong in the next episode. But for now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass Politics. <laughs>